Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Jennifer Sutton, and I am here to interview Dr. Colleen Vasconcelos about her book, Slavery, Childhood, and Abolition in Jamaica, published by University of Georgia Press in 2015 as part of their Early American Places series. Today is Wednesday, May 15th, and we are going to begin the interview now. And good morning. Hello. Hi. So tell us about the intellectual journey or inspiration that led you to write this book. So it first started when I was in uh, the MA program at East Tennessee State, and I wanted to do something on childhood and something dealing with enslaved children somewhere in the Atlantic world. And I did my MA thesis on children in the slave trade, and so it just seemed logical that the next step would be investigating the lives and experiences of children who were enslaved in the Atlantic world. Mm-hmm. I originally wanted to be an Americanist, and I, when I got to the PhD program at uh, FIU, I um, enrolled in this class by Dr. Sherry Johnson on Florida and the Caribbean, and it completely changed my life, and I had the aha moment and decided that after that I was gonna move into Caribbean studies and Atlantic studies. So um, I chose my island, which was Jamaica, because honestly that was where the biggest amount of sources were. Um, And I'd always had this fascination with Jamaica anyway. And so when I originally went to go do my dissertation research, I wanted to do something on children's relationship to the maintenance and reinvention of African cultural identity. Mm-hmm. And so I had this big, <laughs> ridiculous um, sense of idealism that I was going to walk into the archives and everything I needed was just going to be there right. about children <laughs> and, you know, that they, and I, and I had this, and I still think it's true, but there's no way to prove it, that children were that link between Africa and the Jamaican identity that would develop um, in Uh, this period of history but I just couldn't find anything to support it so I had this grant and I had these opportunities to be here for a year so I just kept investigating um, children's experiences and decided to let the sources guide me Mm -hmm. so what really started coming out in the archives was um, was this uh, this narrative about how children related to the abolitionist movement And so I decided to just switch gears um, quite easily, actually, and just focus on the relationship of children to that movement and that movement's relationship to the lives of children and the changing nature of childhood. So that's sort of how um, the book took shape um, and how I I ended up on that path. Right on. Okay, and um, can you tell us something about your main argument and the uh, contribution that it makes? So... um, one of the things that we find in Caribbean studies or, or any, um, any study of childhood, I think, is that um, it's really difficult to find their voices and mm-hmm. it's really difficult to find them within the narrative. And so it makes it difficult sometimes for us to place them within the narrative. Mm-hmm. So um, I think as 
historians were, we, we have a lot of responsibility on our plate, but historians of childhood, and for me, um, now that I'm moving into girlhood, we have this responsibility to, to keep this authenticity in the narrative, but to really look for these kids and, and help them um, step out of that periphery and into the forefront. Right. So I think that my book and the others that are starting to come out um, are are helping to dismantle that peripheral place for these children and to help them come into the wider narrative on what slavery was like and how abolition um, was affecting this and, and all of that. So so I think that's sort of where the, the book sits in the narrative. Um, and also to bring that, that abolitionist argument away from England and move it into something that you can take and you can apply it um, in an almost tangible sense to where you can see how it's, how it's truly affecting their lives and how it's changing their lives, mm-hmm. not just giving them freedom, but, but how it changes their lives outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book... One of the things that I found when I was doing my research was that um, the changing nature of childhood is linked to changes in the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. And so before the abolitionist movement really picks up speed in the 1780s, um, anything before, say, 1750 and 17, I would say maybe 75, 70, um, you really see children as being a burden, um, slave traders don't want to purchase them. Um, they aren't seen as being an investment. They don't even begin work on the plantation until they're five, and, and it's very difficult to keep them alive until they're five years old. Um, so it's really an out-of-pocket expense, in their opinion. So they don't want children on the estate, and they really discourage women from having children. When abolition begins to come in and threaten the slave trade and later the system of slavery itself, you see children changing in their um, opinion and also in their relationship to the estate and to the system. So children now are an investment. You see um, slave traders who are, are, or planters who are commissioning entire ships to be nothing but children. People are passing laws to um, restrict the number of adults that are on ships. You see the nature of childhood changing in that they're offering incentive programs to women so that they'll have more children. And this plan of amelioration comes out where they're trying to ameliorate or improve the condition of enslaved men, women, and children on the estates. They have it completely twisted. They think everything they're doing is 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 working and it's mm-hmm. not because they're so malnourished and they're so overworked and the punishment is so severe that it actually hinders any natural increase. So as abolition begins to come in, children have this this larger place that that they take within that wider narrative and everyone is reorganizing their opinion on this to to move children is almost this thing um, that they can rely on. They become dependent upon childhood almost um, and upon these slave children to get them where they need to go. Um, and then when they sit, when abolitionists, abolitionists succeed in um, abolishing slavery and it ends in Jamaica after a brief apprenticeship period in 1838, children even before the apprenticeship period when the order goes through in 1833, children are now the burden again. 
because any child below the age of six is free. Mm-hmm. And apprenticeship is meant to transition them, you can't see air quotes, transition, end quote, mm-hmm. them from slavery to freedom. And so children mm-hmm. don't have a place in this. Mm-hmm. And so again, they're, they're this thing that planners are now having to deal with. So you see them mm-hmm. almost come full circle. So that's, that's really where the book is. Okay. And what do you think remains unknown or what future research in this area is needed? I think we have a lot that we need to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's only so much that we're going to be able to do. One okay. of the so, things that I've been working on now is this almost methodolog- methodological approach to um, telling children's stories mm-hmm. um, and, and enslaved girls' stories within this wider thing of enslavement and we just there's not much that we really know of them you know outside of these other larger discussions about gender and about uh, natural increase and natural decrease on estates or even just the abolitionist narrative so for us to kind of have to sift through that and find these children is is really difficult so I think there's only so much that we're going to be able to do and it's going to be a challenge for us to be able to do that Um, I think what's even more challenging for us as historians of childhood and girls is trying to move away from that collective narrative to Mm -hmm. where you talk about children or you talk about girls in this very general sense. Mm -hmm. And so you get an idea of what children's experiences were, but we don't have people really talking about them or documenting their lives specifically, so it's difficult for us to find specific people, specific children in that, mm-hmm. to really move away from that collective narrative into something that's more individual. So that's, I think that's a challenge for us. And then the other challenge is, is to talk about these children, and I think this is where we as, as historians of childhood are, are excelling, is that we're talking about the children and we're making people aware that they're there yes. and that they're a part of these experiences when people just don't think that they are. I mean, these children had friendships. They had lives. They had kinship networks. They were a part of this this community that protected them and, and took care of them. And, and they also had agency in their in their own right. And I think for us to, to see them as something more than this stereotypical image of a child is very hard for people who read our work, but um, for some of us as well when we're examining them and their experiences. So I think that's one of the challenges that we have to face as well. Okay. And Colleen, what are you doing next? (laughs) Big question. What's next? Um, So my work has shifted since the passage of this book um, to looking at children um, just as this group of boys and girls Mm -hmm. to move more into this... um, uh, new focus on girls and girls' experiences. Mm -hmm. So I've been working on that, and I've been focusing on these um, these three girls that stick out in the narrative. Um, One girl is named Sally. She was um, Congolese, and she was purchased at probably about eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. And she was um, purchased by Thomas Thistlewood, who... You know who Thistlewood is. You, you, yeah. So um, Thistlewood is like the uber villain of the Atlantic world. He's <laughs> yeah. he's absolutely vile, and that's who she's purchased by, and and it it absolutely devastates her life. And so I've been focusing on her and looking at her life, and we actually have this rare 
occurrence because Thistlewood was so meticulous in his diary that we're able to actually construct her life until she's about 30 years old. It's astounding. Um, so, and, and, and what, what we're able to see is that she, um, her life is absolutely just turned upside down and she, she, um, practices self-harm. She runs away as many times as she possibly can. She's very angry. She's disruptive. She pushes everybody, even in the slave community away. Mm-hmm. And he has her transported off the island. And I'm now I'm trying to figure out where she goes. Wow. Which is going to be impossible. Um, then there's a girl named Molly, who is a, a, a person of color um, who's legally categorized as a mulatto, although I think she may have have um, been more than half, but I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out more information about her. And she was owned by the Clarendon Vestry. And um, the person who I think was her father actually put in a petition and tried to have her manumitted and he purchased um an enslaved woman in her place which was the custom but the vester the vestry the i guess the rector um kidnaps the woman and left well and so he didn't have the money to purchase another woman because we're talking like 200 pounds um which in today's money is like you know a new car right so um so she was in this vestry for her entire life, and she had four children by a white man who we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a petition put forth in the Jamaican Assembly for her freedom, and she received it. So I'm trying to, and so we have this rare occurrence of her entire life mm-hmm. that's there. And so I'm trying to add more pieces to that. And what I want to do is compare their stories. Yes. Um, and then I have another girl who I'm trying to find more information about just so I can have another girl um, that I can add a little bit more to the the comparison yeah. who tried to kill her owner by poisoning him and she went to court. Wow. And she was young. She was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And she got the poison she says from her grandmother. And in court she... Um, she says, oh, I didn't know what it was. You know, my grandmother gave it to me and yeah. I, I just, you know, I put it in his tea and whatever. Yeah. And one of the people who went to the trial says that, that she, um, basically stood over him and watched him, you know? So, oh. so there's, there's this agent, there's not only this agency, but there's this, this image of this young girl who we see as a 10 year old today, mm-hmm. who's trying to kill her owner because yeah. she's in this very adult situation and she's. She has agency in her own right, and she has this this plan. And, I mean, the, the guy in, who's watching the court case is basically painting her as some sort of sociopath. But what she actually is doing is she's taking control of her mm-hmm. own life. And so what I want to do is is look at these three girls, and or three, I guess two of them will eventually be women. I don't know what happens to the other. Uh, Minetta is her name. Um, and I want to see, you know, what happens to them. And I want to mm. see what we can find and, and what that tells us about um, what it's like to grow up in this situation from mm. a very personal point of view. And and these girls really illustrate um, the different circumstances that enslaved girls can be put into. Right. Um, and move it away, not just from that. Um, they move from being girls to being breeding wenches or breeders mm. or seen in this very adult thing with sex but I want it to be where you can see them beyond what they're being used for and see them as a person in their own 
So that's one thing that I'm working on that's proving to be pretty difficult, but we're going to see how it goes. And then the other thing that I've been, uh, there's two other things that I'm working on. There's one about Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Mm -hmm. I started this a long time ago before Hamilton ever became the Hamilton that he is right now. <laughs> right. Um, but he was born in the Caribbean and mm -hmm. he, um, he became a founding father and would have been president someday if, if he hadn't got into the infamous duel. So I want to look at his childhood and I want to look at what it was like to be who he was um, as an illegitimate son of some Scottish somebody um, who who rose to where he was being at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at that and that's something that's very difficult because he doesn't want to talk about it. Yes. He doesn't like to talk about where he's from. So this is where that you know, way back machine would be really handy. Right. Um, and then the other thing that I'm uh, working on that's the one that's proving to be the easiest is um, there's a slave ship called the Wanderer mm -hmm. that um, had an entire, um, I don't want to say cargo. It was the, it was a commissioned voyage um, for just boys. And the Wanderer was one of the last ships to come into Georgia mm -hmm. in the 1840s. Mm -hmm. And um, what's interesting to me is that it's a commissioned ship just for boys. And the boys are um, are young. They're 10, 11. Mm -hmm. um, but usually what you see is, in the, from a Caribbean stance, is the ships that come in, if they have a preference, they want girls. Mm -hmm. at, um, because they're using them for breeders and they're using them as investments. Yes. So the the boy cargo commission, mm -hmm. I hate to use that word, um, it is really interesting to me. But it makes sense because Georgia and and North America has no dependence on the trade. Um, they they use the domestic trade, but they don't use the African trade. Mm -hmm. But with this being such, you know, farther after the eighteen oh eight cut. Mm -hmm. Or it being an illegal voyage and the commission of just boys, it's an investment, definitely. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me is that it's an investment in boy labor instead of girl breeding. Mm -hmm. So what's been done on it already is just focusing on the court case that resulted. And, and the only thing that's out there really is this book that's really thin and it's written by a New York Times editor, so it's it doesn't really have footnotes, and it's more like mm -hmm. a creative nonfiction um, type thing. And so I want to look at the boys instead of the case, and I want to see what's really going on and what happened to them. Right. Um, so that's that's where I am now. That's wonderful. Okay. I think that's it. Yeah, I believe so. So this. Um... We'll conclude our interview, and thank you so much. Thank you for interviewing me, and, and thank you, everyone, who's who's listened this far, and thank you to Patrick Ryan um, for contacting me and inviting me to share my work with everyone at the SHCY. And um, if you have any questions, my contact information will be in the bio that will be attached to this interview. So thank you. Thank you.